This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 218 of Film Tank. As per usual, Alex Diekman here with you, along with one of my regular co-hosts, Nick Cheney. Hey, uh, I'm going to go out and run to get some donuts. Does anybody want anything? <laughs> See, the good thing uh... about that, since this is the first time, well, actually, it was the second attempt for me to watch this, but the first time I'd actually uh watched it straight through and not fallen asleep. Yep. Uh the great thing about that gag is that the first time it happens, I kind of just thought it was like a stupid a cop joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we have to up... celebrate. I'll go get donuts. Yeah. And then it just ends up being his excuse to go make the call. That's how dumb he is. Yeah. He would say the same thing every time and <laughs> and then it would be donuts which nobody's ever seen eating. Yep. Right. Well, that's uh, yeah. There's uh, no donut in this shop film. on the street either. I noticed because I kept looking. I'm like, okay, is there a donut shop this yeah. time? And he just no. walked to the corner of it, just turns around as <laughs> yeah. if as if there's no way he could just step outside of the bail bond. Turning place. his head, just yeah. Anyway, it was a different time before yeah, cell phones. True. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the other voice you hear is our good friend Dan Brooks joining mm-hmm. us. No? Wow. Uh, Chorizo and eggs. I don't know. I was trying to think of... You know, <laughs> you, oh, okay. I was going to do the wire, wire, wiring on popular Chicago Police Department. <laughs> you know, wiring on popular... You know, just over and over. But, I know, honestly thought eggs. you were going to give me a hard time for using your last name or something. So I was just no, like... No, oh, no, okay. no. Please. Okay, cool. No. I'm, I'm didn't, totally... th- didn't think so, but you were like like in like a dead stare pause. Uh, and I was like, what have I done? He, the no, problem no, is he thought right. of too many references. Exactly. <laughs> and then he couldn't... It's kind of like the scene in uh, Scott Pilgrim where he's trying to figure out what his answer is. And then the uh, arrow lands on to whatever so instead of it's either I have to pee or it's nice to see you and he's like I have to pee on you <laughs> that actually is exactly what happened yeah. oh. I mean complete with the thought bubble and everything yeah. I need to need to watch that one again I really enjoyed that the first movie. time I saw it it's a really amazing film I mean yeah. the first time I saw it I really enjoyed it and then the more I thought about it and I saw it again I'm like this is actually an incredibly groundbreaking very film. interesting okay. to uh, I mean the whole film is but mm. very interesting to pick Jason Schwartzman as your villain, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and also too. That's a great. Is it? Is it Kieran Culkin? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As his, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, roommate. Right? Pre uh, secession. Is that him? No. Is it no. Kieran or the Rory? I, I dude. I, I think it always get is, the mixed up. It is Kieran, not Rory, which means okay. it's not. It's him not him. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't look, know. They look so much alike. Yeah, I know. Kieran like, was the one who was in Signs when he was a kid. That sounds yes. right. I thought he was really good in that. I mean, yeah. I get those two. Like, even though Macaulay is obviously another one and the most famous one, like I can always tell him. Mm-hmm. But the other two, I'm like, 
I yeah. Mm-hmm. One of them was in Fargo season two. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to get us off on. No, it wasn't you. We love that Alex. here. So yes, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the nice. Baby. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> No, we're uh, going to be on target. I've got like way less notes than normal. Oh, okay. Look like Seriously. it because you typed have, these out. I typed. I type all of them out. <laughs> okay. Honestly, thank well, you for clearing that up. Yeah, Parasite. You should have seen. It was like I had to pare it down that from like true. ten pages to like I think it was seven in the end. It's good to be concise. <sighs> and I wasn't able to do that, but yes, That's I agree. It would be a good. A little more concise. Yes, this that's time. a good movie to extrapolate, though. It is not that we are not going to have a fun conversation for this, but this is slightly more uh, on the surface. Right. In all the right ways. Oh, absolutely. But. And that film uh, that uh, these two fine gentlemen are referencing <laughs> is the Robert De Niro-led 1988 film Midnight Run, uh, which was directed by Martin Brest, who... Uh, uh, uh. I'm sorry. I, I think it every time. It was a nice, like, <laughs> butthead This is real. Laugh. Yeah, that was what I was doing. <laughs> the most highbrow thing I could do. I'm sorry. Who directed this? <laughs> We're not falling for it again. I promise not to laugh. I don't believe not. So Martin, Martin directed this. Not, not that Martin. <laughs> Marty! Marty! Oh, I was, I was thinking of Martin Lawrence on show Martin. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking De Niro, Martin, right. you know, I guess. In, what's up? Martin yeah. Lawrence, yes. Yeah, no, no, no. So uh, he has quite a few credits, including Scent of a Woman and the original mm. Beverly Hills Cop, uh, and also uh, a lovely little film called Geely. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of a career ender, unfortunately, for Mr. Breast. Yes. <laughs> That was my nickname in high school. He'll, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I but see, the problem, Nick, yeah, well, because the connotations of that can go either way. Um, True. You know, he also, he also. I don't give you yeah. the benefit of the doubt. That's fine. I don't. I don't deserve it. Um, but yeah, he also did another film before that called Meet Joe Black, which was also he did Meet of, Joe Black. Yeah, and it was kind of. Is that the one that people bag. circulate the clip from of Brad Pitt? Or somebody getting hit by the yes, car, that's which is a, so funny. It is, and it's like it was so shocking when you watch the movie because he's just walking. He's just talked to the gal. He's having a good, you know. He's just left the coffee shop, and then bam! Just the way it's edited is ridiculous. It is. Anyway. It is. And uh, but I mean, Jeffrey Tambor's in it. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden and uh, Anthony Hopkins is like the lead in it. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's some some interesting stuff in it, but I don't know. It's it's a mixed bag. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Midnight Run, yes. uh, I don't think necessarily is a mixed bag, but it does mm-hmm. have a lot of people in it, as, yeah. uh, in addition to Bobby D. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the second lead is played by Charles Grodin, yeah. uh, who mm-hmm. most mainstream people probably <laughs> would remember from Beethoven. Yeah. Uh, but Unfortunately. I actually always remember him from The Great Muppet Caper, oh, as yeah, he right. plays he the, the villain, villain in that film. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so he plays the character who has a great name of Jonathan Mardukas. Uh, which is a good name of it in its own, and then he can have the nickname of the Duke. Yeah. So that's great. Uh, and also, it sounds like such a good gangster name, and he's just like a shitty accountant. So <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Alonzo Mosley, uh, the lead FBI agent who uh, really just got by on facial expressions in this movie, <laughs> uh, is played by Yafet Kato. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have some other players here um, who are higher and lower on the uh, 
spectrum of terms of people you would know if you saw them. Um, John Ashton, who's kind of been around in things. Uh, He's done other films from the same director, Mm -hmm. uh, including uh, the original Beverly Hills Cop. Mm. Uh, I always remember him from... Uh, little Big League, but that's okay. oh wow! I've oh, seen that. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, Dennis Farina is in Little Big League. So really? It's funny. Yeah. Oh, wow! And he is here playing yeah. uh, the mop gangster Jimmy Serrano. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a couple other people in this, including Philip Baker Hall playing the character of Sydney. Mm-hmm. We'll discuss that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a, as per usual, wonderful performance by Little Joe Pants, Joe Pantoliano oh, playing. Yeah. Eddie Moscone. Uh, uh, they literally must have just thought of the most Italian names yeah. ever, put them in a hat, and said, you're going to be this guy. Yeah. And how about that hair that it looked like it's clinging for that, dear life? That comb over, yeah. That yeah. comb over is a hell of a thing. I'm, I'm <laughs> dead serious. He's a dead ringer for Casey Affleck right now in, in this in movie. In that movie, in that mm-hmm. era, yeah, no, oh, yeah. He has that weirdly mm-hmm. disheveled uh, but manic kind of energy. I I'd say manic yeah. intensity, but yeah. I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it earlier, and then yeah. I'm like, yeah, you totally see it. Yeah. yeah, the more I saw it, the more I was like, man, if it, if he had hair, he would just be you know, happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He just wants to be put back in the Matrix. It's fine. Mm-hmm. So Midnight Run right. surrounds a Midnight Run. Haha. <laughs> no, it surrounds an accountant that is chased by bounty hunters, the FBI, and the mafia after jumping bail. Okay. Kind of technically happening here. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah. Uh so uh this was my first time, as I mentioned, viewing the film. Uh, and I know that this is a film that Nick and Dan both really like. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like, Dan, you were the driving force behind us doing this uh, film. So Ooh. maybe in addition to your kind of just overall opening thoughts, why don't you let us in on uh, why you wanted to do an episode on this film? Oh, I'd love to. Um, well, I, one thing that was interesting is, is Nick and I got to know each other. We found out that we both considered this a, a huge masterpiece and it's funny because i i only know a couple people who've seen it and most of them are like oh it's okay it's pretty good but nick and i are really enthusiastic about it so it's very rare to meet somebody who actually feels that way so i was like wow. yeah no this is one of those like you know you if you if you find a fellow cinephile who's mm-hmm. in love with this movie as much as you are i feel like it's a real bonding moment i concur uh, it's not fellow like travelers. two bros like oh you like fight club i like fight club <laughs> yeah like i like fight club bring it well, well i just I meant too, but... like <laughs> where have you been all my life well yeah right I it's, it's not as obs- i mean fight club's not as obscure i love star wars too <laughs> right yeah. right exactly. i got i, I got to prove it <laughs> Unfortunately, that's kind of what those conversations really like. cowards. I don't know. That's totally unrelated, but kind of just love that. Oh, boy. Anyway. Uh, so basically, uh, okay, so there's a little bit of a story attached to this. Uh, the first time I saw it was 1988 in, in, I want to say, August. And I saw it at a place called the Highlight 30 Drive-In, which was which is on the corner of um, Montgomery and mm. um, Route 30, thus the Highlight 30. But the funny thing is, until like 1986 or so, it was known as the Dirty 30 because it showed Ew. only porn. And like, I mean, nope. actual, I take it back. actual porn on like an outdoor drive-in screen. Mm. Like you could be driving past it 
and you could, if you knew the radio station for the thing, <laughs> you could tune in and hear like women climaxing, basically, which my parents did not do because they were very strict. But I knew that it existed. Is <laughs> the point thing? Uh, anyway, so there was guys want to go get some free entertainment. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they were able to skirt, you know, zoning laws and and, yeah. and city. I'm laws. not going to be able to think about anything else for the rest of the episode. Uh, but the, honest to God, true. I mean, it's, there it, was a lot going on during the Carter administration. So. Well, true, true that. That's all right. Peanuts. Uh, peanuts. He was a peanut farmer. That's true. Uh, so the legend has it that. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so anyway, oh, that's actually true. Jimmy Carter was in fact a peanut farmer. In, I know that's why I was oh, doing oh, I th- the peanut salesman. Oh, I thought it was like you know. I don't know. Anyway, from he Plains, was, Georgia, re- referencing Mr. Peanut's death. Oh, baby nut. Sad. Oh, baby nut. Anyway, so <laughs> thank legend, you for getting us back on track. So the legend has it that um, the owner, and I don't know if this is true, but the legend had it was the owner uh, was embarrassed about the fact that she couldn't tell her granddaughter what? Like, what kind of theater she owned. Yeah. So eventually, in like she owned it, she should own up to it. Exactly. You own it. That's on you. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's the legend. I don't know if it's true or not. But basically, around eighty six ish. It switched and became more mainstream films. It became boring. That's what it sounds well, like. Well, a little, but, you know, again, the outdoor theater could hold like 700 cars. Oh, wow. I mean, according to their advertisement at the time. Yeah. And there was like one indoor screen, but it was really big. It was like a movie palace big. And I don't think I was ever in the indoor screen without it being dark. So I have no idea like what the ceiling looked like or yeah, anything yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, and it, it, the reason why I mentioned that is because it had actual bats. I'm not kidding. Oh. It had actual bats that lived there. Jesus. So you'd be, seriously, I remember watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and like we would watch bats like literally fly over the screen and you'd be like, Oh, that's a, that's a bat right there. That's that's like Hitchcock level of like we're gonna put bats in the theater. Seriously. As soon as he gets into the cave. Right. We're gonna put bats and then we're gonna lock the doors <laughs> and there's gonna be an ambulance outside. <laughs> really quick, mm-hmm. I don't want but I um, Go on. very poorly misspoke. And Jimmy Carter was definitely not president then. It was definitely Ronald Reagan. I was going to so, say that. My bad. But, it but I was enamored well, with my peanut joke. Yeah. So. I, I, so. For all I know, though, the Highlight 30 may have been around up until the, like, as far back as the 70s. So. No, no. And, and it, but, but I yeah. was just, for, for whatever reason, I said it and I was like, you know what? That doesn't seem right. And then I just confirmed that to myself. I was like, oh. Yeah. So, anyways. 76 I'm, to 80. Right yeah. I'm, I'm we going, know our presidents here on Film Tank. It's all good. Uh, you know, yeah. Reagan was president during that time, but he wasn't really there, so don't worry about it. You know, he was like, mm. anyway. Uh, so anyway, it the the highlight there did it actually eventually close in two thousand six ish, and it was like, oh, this place bought it, and they're going to put a school there or homes there, and nothing. And so it's like, if you could, you can go to the corner of Montgomery and Thirty, and there's still like <laughs> just a field. Oh. So please be outraged with me about that because it pisses me off to this day. Because it was such a fun experience. I saw so many great movies. Was, you know, like Hunt for Red October, um, you know, Young Einstein. I mean, everyone loves that film. You know, it's a classic. That's a stone classic. Anyway, <laughs> so I saw this with my dad late August 1988. And my parents were very strict, at, especially back then. And they were like, but at the time, we were seeing it on a double bill. So you pay for one movie and you get two, right? Yep. And we were going to go see Tucker, A Man in His Dream. Now, my dad is a huge car guy. He still is to this day. And I was pretty psyched about the movie, too. And Tucker and a Man in the Stream is a really good movie, by the way. But first, we watched Midnight Run. 
And it's like you couldn't have like more diametrically opposed movies. Like Tucker, I don't think there's any swearing in the movie at all. And like Midnight Run, I had never heard the the, the tapestry of F word. I mean, like I, I was like, I don't even know. You know, I mean, it was it was another world. Yeah, so. it's weird how I would say it might seem tame mm-hmm. to a viewer today because we've seen movies where some people say like the F word every mm. like second, like Martin Scorsese or whatever. Right. It goes however, from an F, F bomb to an F carpet yeah. bomb, if you will. But yeah. however, th- there's a very casual uh, disregard for <laughs> even, you know, like the most whatever modest sense of decorum that <laughs> right. they, they don't really try to give you the, I don't know, the picturesque version of like, gangsters or criminals like it's never like a weirdly dirty movie or anything like that but they uh it's a nice little balance it's almost like scorsese light it is it is i mean there isn't a whole i mean there's some killing but not a great deal and and i think this film does a good job portraying what people think these people are like yeah yeah mostly comedic effect yeah Yeah, absolutely Mm -hmm. So, um, again, my parents are pretty strict. So hmm. my dad went into this thinking, well, it's R-rated, but, you know, I don't know. Because that could mean a lot of things back then. Yeah, I mean, that was before that uh, PG-13 was a real mainstream. Right. I mean, so, you yeah. had it, but at the time it wasn't really codified that the idea was that, like, okay, if you say the F word more than twice, yep. you're in the R-rated. Still haven't gotten that, by the way. It's bizarre. I, f- I feel like you're you're saying it, so it's still being uttered. It's funny because it's so. twice, mm-hmm. but it's also once per uh, different use. So, like, right. if you say it twice, they have to be different definitions. So one can be the sexual reference and the other one can be the exclamation, but they can't do two still of the same. saying it. I know. So, no, it, it makes no sense. Uh, the whole, but that's how arbitrary it is. Yeah. The MPAA is is the most bizarre thing. I mean, I could go on for hours about Jack Valenti and what a hypocrite he is. But anyway, <laughs> I'll leave that alone for now. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, my dad and I watched the movie, and mm-hmm. you know, we got totally wrapped up. And we saw it indoors, by the way, it wasn't the outdoor. And we totally got into it. And you know, it's just a really absorbing, funny movie. It's got really magnetic characters, and I could tell my dad totally loved it. But. My dad, being the good man that he was and a good parent, afterwards, while we were getting snacks and awaiting the next movie, Tucker, there was a big snack area. My dad did feel it was his duty as a man who had to set a good example for the children, and I totally understand this now. He was like, well, there was way too much swearing in that movie. That was that was just terrible. But I mean, I knew my dad enjoyed it, but at the <laughs> same time, I understood why he had to fulfill that role as, as the father. So I don't hold it against him. Hmm. But... Related to the swearing, um, there is a hilarious WGN dubbed version, which I hmm. recorded many years, like back in 1990, and I still own because it's <laughs> so hilarious. I mean, so like, okay, so people from the Midwest know like WGN is like, you, you've heard of WGN yeah, if you're yeah, from like... Superstation. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like Michigan, Ohio, you know, you all kind of, hmm. a lot of people get it in still. And they were, like, notorious for having, like, the worst dubbing. Like, I remember watching The Breakfast Club and just laughing and laughing. And it's not even that much swearing in that movie. But, I mean... It's like, you know, the Big Lebowski when yeah. he'll say, this is what you get when you find a, str- <laughs> find a stranger in the Alps <laughs> instead of fuck a stranger in the ass. Yes, yes. And, yeah, so anyway. I remember uh, WGN had a uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, you know, the third movie. And instead of Motherfucker, it was Mellow Farmer. <laughs> so I mean I still don't understand sure. where that came from but it chills me to the bone it, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so like so like you know uh, Joey Pantalonia is like uh, everybody's telling me to go fuck myself everybody's and it's like 
everybody's telling me to go. And then there'd be like a dub of like clearly not him, some other, you know, maybe an English person or somebody from the Europe or whatever. And they'd be like, hang myself. Everybody's telling me to go hang myself. <laughs> it was awful. It was just so bad that I, I still kept the uh, thing. And also the whole chicken fucking exchange was totally cut. I and mean, they were like, okay, we can't do anything with this. You know, WGN's like, we just threw up their hands like, no. So please be outraged with me about that, too. Well, yeah, that's I'm, like their pivotal bonding moment. It is. Yeah. I mean, they kept the rest of it, but not the yeah. chicken fucking. But that's the entree into the rest of the yeah. thing. Sad. So anyway, uh, yeah. so that's kind of the story of how I first saw it. I mean, I've seen it probably six times since then. But uh, it was, you know, it, it just totally captured my imagination. I think I was like, I don't know, 10 at the time, 11 maybe. Yeah, and that's a very rare thing, I think, for movies to hold up from mm-hmm. when you saw them at, uh, at that age to then True. watch it. Now, on the one hand, it was an adult movie, so it's not <laughs> like it was you know the other way around or whatever. <laughs> but still, sometimes when you're a kid, you love certain adult movies because of what you think you're getting away with, and then you realize, oh, God, that was either awful, offensive, <laughs> boring, whatever. Uh, sure. But this was uh, certainly not of that caliber. Right, right. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Oh yeah. Oh, I was. I'm trying to think of a movie you were talking about the other day uh, when we were hanging out. Um, you mentioned a movie you saw. I, I can't remember what it was now, but it's not a film that holds up very well. But at the time, it was. Oh, I do vaguely remember that conversation. You know what I mean? It was something like. Um, I don't know. Three, uh, not three ninjas. Yeah, I mean that's a terrible. <laughs> I don't know why. I did funny. watch that all the time though. That was well, like, then maybe oh, no. That wasn't what I was thinking. But I mean something oh, like God. that. I loved all those movies. Like literally all four of them, I was wow. obsessed Black with. Sheep, uh, oh, sure. Black Sheep's great. Sure, but no. Beverly Hills Ninja. No, no. speaking of ninjas, no. one no. of these days I don't remember. It, it was fine. It yeah. doesn't matter. But it, but the point was, is you were talking about like how different your taste was even within like a two year period. Like you know, before it was this, and then you kind of made this quantum leap. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, if I go into some opening thoughts really quick, yeah, on ahead. Midnight Run, I will admit that I was a late comer to this. I think mm. I only saw it for the first time within the last five or six years, but it was definitely one of those things where I was expecting something lukewarm on arrival. Like I just thought, you know, Robert De Niro, who I do love, mm. um, but being in what's kind of a buddy cop, except it's really buddy criminal uh, movie. Trying to do his comedy chops before what I would know his comedy chops to really be, which were things like Meet the Parents and whatnot. Yeah. I'm like, huh, you know, whatever. And I ended up watching it. And ironically, when I first watched it, I watched it with my father. Oh, really? Uh, because I asked him if he'd ever seen it and he couldn't remember. So we watched it. And he actually said he had never seen it before. So he was, because he loves gangster movies and whatnot, he was very happy with that choice. But I absolutely fell in love with this movie. I do think it's funny Dan said the M word earlier when he said masterpiece. And uh, I got to admit that this is kind of what I think of when I think of a perfect movie, which is not to say that it's the best movie I've ever seen. But through and through, like, think of another movie from the 80s that is um, going for a different barrage of things, whether it be, in this case, like comedy, action, drama, all in one package uh that in in no way has been outdated like the technology they're in sure like the world doesn't look like that anymore but Mm -hmm. the script could be written almost the exact same way today we just don't want to make movies like this anymore Mm -hmm. um like there's nothing in it that has uh that was uh 
misguided or anything like that. Like, And I just think it's a perfect narrative path of these two characters because throughout the two-hour-plus, I think, running time, there are so many disparate threads that are connected all because of the Duke's character from the uh, the mob to the rival bounty hunter to the FBI to uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, and it is so organic in the way that they keep converging. Like you never get tired of any one party popping up because no mm-hmm. one, uh, you know, faction basically takes over the movie. Um, and they all kind of have their respective uh, purposes. I think in this film, like you have the, um, it's almost funny because in my opinion, you have, you have your actual antagonist, which is Jimmy Serrano. You know, with Dennis played by Dennis Farina. Uh, but the other characters are kind of different shades of uh, Robert De Niro kind of almost going up against himself, including Charles Grodin, because you, he's protecting a guy who's actually a lot like him, even if he wouldn't admit that, that you know he's just a guy who's trying to stand up for right what's right, even if it's going to get him killed, which is very much what he, Robert De Niro, is doing as a bounty hunter. Then he goes up his literal profession up against that with the rival bounty hunter. Then he goes up against the FBI, who's basically what he could be if he was given the chance, but he wasn't by Jim, the likes of the mafia and whatnot. Uh, and I just love that it's kind of like him just trying to make some money to, and, and leave it all behind in a way that feels authentic and not kind of like cliche, you know. Um, but the friendship formed by the two uh, gentlemen in this movie I just think is pitch perfect because they never actually veer into maudlin territory uh, in which they finally break down and they're like, you know what, I respect the hell out Like You get the sense that they do, but neither one of them either A, have time for that, or B, <laughs> place much value in speaking those things out loud. And I just absolutely love how, I kind of mentioned it during our, our view this evening, that so much of their kind of budding friendship is spoken through little acts of intimacy that uh, just start to kind of exponentially increase the more the film goes on. And by the time, you know, they're in Chicago, uh, when he gets Charles Grodin's character back in the car, he actually lifts up his jacket uh, and puts it in the car for him because he's handcuffed and he can't do it himself and without saying a word and whatever. And little things like that that I I just absolutely eat up. But um, before I pass it on to Alex like I'll just say that I just think that this is uh, I think the humor is so great because it never feels forced like this, these feel like conversational pieces that would happen in this environment and whatnot mm-hmm. but there's some very funny I think acting and performances going on from facial reaction to certain people's lines to just outright buffoonery that give this world so much texture without actually uh, knocking it off its orbit into a cartoonish depiction. I, mm. I crack up every time I see the scene in which the two goons are talking to Dennis Farina uh, on the payphone, and the other one, the much stupider one, is like just doing this stupid play fighting with uh, the guy on the phone while that guy is basically getting his ear chewed off by their boss, who can very easily kill them with the snap of his fingers. But the other one, uh, I think his name is Todd or Tony, one of the two. Uh, Tony, Tony, uh, he's just play, you know, hitting him on the shoulder or whatever. And then even that guy, that's kind of where you get the sense of why they're together. (laughs) It starts to like almost unconsciously fight back when he does that little kick, you know, whatever. Um, And I I just absolutely love little moments like that. And it's kind of embodied by how they bring in uh, Phil Baker Hall's character. Mm -hmm. In any other movie, 
he would be some kind of fixer. Like he would come in and he'd be like, okay, I'm taking over this operation right. for you, you know, whatever. But he's actually just a, a piece of decor in this movie. Like he's just there. To... He almost comes across as like a, like representation or something like yeah. that. Like yeah. it, and it felt yeah. weirdly authentic in the way that he's actually just there to monitor the proceedings and even, and give advice. And then it's, because he's Jimmy Serrano, and that's his thing, then he just shoots down all this. But I like that they don't actually really even explain uh, as to like what the full relationship there. You just know that it's got a probably storied history. But uh, I, I, I love every part of this movie. I just think it's impeccably uh, you know, performed throughout. And uh, I, once again... Sounds really bad to say because we said earlier that this. Anytime you say this now, it sounds like a "Make America Great uh, Again" type feeling. But they really don't make things like this anymore. Uh, as far as these kind of low key comedies that actually allow you to pause for drama and not signal you for drama, because like I feel like that's the Marvel template or something like that, where it's like. Sure. You know, now we're going to hit that one moment where, and it, while this movie does do that in the form of a little scenes like Chicago or whatever, mm-hmm. it also doesn't completely wrap up their arcs. It just kind of puts another beat on it, and mm. uh, uh, I absolutely love it. So, yeah, That's Midnight Run is one of my all-time favorites. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's a good way to say that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, again, first time uh, watching all the way through and not falling asleep, so that was good. And uh, definitely watching this from start to finish, uh, I can confirm that I uh, was just really tired that evening, and that's where it, what led to me falling asleep, because I thought this movie was very good. Um, I think I'd probably give it a higher rating after a second viewing, um, but I'm already thinking is pretty good. Uh, and I... Um, I really did just have a really easy time connecting with the two main characters as they move throughout. Uh, obviously, different story, different situation, um, but felt very similar to my feelings about the two lead characters in the movie we did a couple weeks ago, The Fisher King. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, they're really more similar than they would like to let on, but mm-hmm. as the film goes on, they are helping each other even without having that be like uh you know we learned a lesson type thing <laughs> yeah, no. so right. uh and and i feel like this obviously is a much different story than that uh but still uh plays very well and um the other great thing about this and this is something that uh you're talking about not having films like this anymore but like we really don't just get good comedy road movies at all like that is a total 80s 90s type of film and and you you really just don't get a idea and i mean i think honestly part of it is just because um films i feel like sometimes get a little too caught up trying to just be character driven instead of having some sort of a plot where this film is kind of I don't want to say unique, but it is interesting that this film clearly has a plot that's going on. Yeah. But it is character-driven throughout, um, mm. so it really is able to move its story along well. I thought the, one of the biggest things that this film had going for it was its pacing was actually very good. I never felt, even though I fell asleep the last time, uh, I never really felt... 
I don't want to say even bored, but I never felt but that's a, disinterested at yeah, any time. But it's a danger from that era, I would say, uh, in the sense that we are not used to this kind of pacing. Uh, mm-hmm. And when it's done wrong, I, I feel like it's understandable to be bored. Yeah, sure, whereas absolutely. I don't think it was done wrong here. No, uh, and um, I think a lot of the dialogue in this film is what delivers this being as strong as it is. And, and some of the actions, too. I'm a super proponent for physical effects, so I feel like that is something that has completely been lost in this generation, um, and it's it's really getting ugly, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and this just just confirms the idea that you know just having a on location shot for four days can go a long way when you have you know. 100 extras who are showing up as police officers and i uh that's another thing too i love how um the amount of police officers that just show up at a given time just yeah. pretty much it's almost like it's almost like they're in a petri dish as the film is going on yeah dan i've watched this movie quite a few times but dan pointed out i think you may even said it was maybe the first time you quite noticed it yeah it was just a couple of days ago when i watched it again but that one of the running gags is that visually more there are more cop cars every time they answer mm-hmm. another call <laughs> like literally starting with two or three cop cars right. and by the very end it is well, like clogged arteries when- Yes, exactly. Um, even though Called the Carter, you know. <laughs> ah, the, uh, the 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 final scene at the airport is Midnight is pun. literally ah. literally oh, everyone else at the airport who is around them is a police officer for the most part. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my favorite gag from that though is when they were trying to. Uh, stop the freight train and there's just so many police cars yep. it is uh, like it is oj's got nothing on that yeah. like <laughs> i know and then they even pay that off too because then you get to see the ridiculous wreckage left behind from that helicopter that's so great which is yeah. a weird detail because that's an actual in-universe shot you know yes, usually yes. it would almost be like hokey if you just cut to something like that but that is made funnier by the fact that that is uh, Alonzo Mosley's view of what has happened. Right, so. right. Yeah, um, it's like he's viewing like I don't know, like a scene from the movie Fury, where like all these tanks, <laughs> and, you know, it's like a battlefield yeah. of destroyed vehicles. You know, it's funny you bring up. I was going to just mention another mm-hmm. war movie, uh, mm-hmm. but I uh, very much appreciated uh, something that mirrors something from Saving Private Ryan, uh, which is towards the end when Tom Hanks is shooting at the tank and it eventually explodes from (laughs) other means than him shooting at it. But I do love that John or no, Robert De Niro is shooting his shotgun at the helicopter and then it just, it just explodes. It's great. I I know know what happened, but at the same time I'm like, yeah, come on. That's great. But that's the thing. It doesn't have to make sense because it looks awesome. It looks awesome. And this is a silly movie on the face value yeah, if yeah, you yeah. take it so uh that kind of action is totally warranted here especially with a lot of the other things that are happening throughout that a lot of good um comeback dialogue mm. and facial mo- movements mm. too i already mentioned about the uh fbi director or chief or whatever mm. he is but uh the look the look he gives one of his reports when he says something like, Oh, it looks like he might have your badge. <laughs> yeah. um, I love that. Yes. Yeah. That and then the slow I think turn. It's the, the same guy who the next scene after they whatever, he's like, Wow, how do you think he got him so quick? <laughs> and then the other one turns to look at him and's like 
Yeah, like nice, yeah. nice job. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good good stuff. This is a good film. Um, the guy you were talking about earlier, uh, the two uh, sort of you know, yeah, the two goons. Yeah, like, more on number one and more on number yeah, two. The, yeah, the the yes. the slightly bigger one um, who is on the phone in that great scene you were referencing. I was trying to place where that guy is from in uh, another gangster film, but he was uh, one of the. Uh, goons in uh the later scenes in the movie carlito's way so oh. i was like hey he's from something else that's good okay. and honestly that guy looked the exact same he just had a big ned flinders mustache in that movie so <laughs> but oh you know what i feel like i remember him in there because i when he had the mustache i thought he looked like the guy uh seymour castle sure you know from sure. uh, royal tenenbaums and right. Rushmore, okay. yeah. because he had the white hair and the white mustache whatever mm-hmm. so and i remember when i first watched it thinking it was possibly him and mm-hmm. then look at so now i know who that is yeah yeah so yeah, I, I'm I'm a fan. I'm I'm glad we we were able to do an episode on this, and I was able yeah. to finally sit down and watch it because this is very much a, a fun film. And yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned De Niro. This was two or three years before Goodfellas, so yeah. this was like yeah. before he had even like hit his gangster yep. peak. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. he's in Godfather Part Two, but like for what people know him from, yeah. Like he hadn't even gotten there yet, so that's mm-hmm. pretty, True. pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, no, and I will say this is often mistakenly his first foray into comedy, but those people have forgotten his Brian De Palma ah, years, yes. uh, which was his literal start to his movie making career back in the late '60s, early '70s when he did a trio of films or at least a couple mm-hmm. with Brian De Palma, where he's hysterical in there because there he's like actually loony and like. <laughs> Like has actual like not that he's not funny in here, but he's funny in here because he's doing a mostly straight role, right? Uh, with a few moments where he kind of breaks and does something like uh, with a facial expression or something, right? Um, but in those movies, he's genuinely being like absurdist and and like Ooh. a cartoon and whatnot, and they're so good. I've been meaning, I've, I've been meaning to watch those for years. They're so good. Looking forward to. Um, but yeah, no, I um, one thing I want to talk about. Really quick is uh, the performance by Charles Grodin. Yes, uh, there are a few uh, guys in my personal comedy like echelon of who I just think is hysterical by just a look, and it's probably Albert Brooks, Charles mm-hmm. Grodin, mm-hmm. and um, Chris Eigenman. <laughs> oh yeah, from Big time. a lot of uh, yes. Noah Baumbach movies yes. and Whit Stillman movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, their earlier days mm-hmm. um but those three guys are kind of like my trifecta of like dry sarcastic neurotics mm-hmm. and um i think they're at their best when they're doing that um charles Grodin, i know is known for sure to most people from beethoven but besides this he's also been in uh elaine may's the heartbreak kid the original that, yes. that ben stiller thing was based <laughs> off of and um in albert brooks's movie uh real life and mm, between right. the three of these movies he's in my opinion one of the funniest actors ever and i feel like he basically retired because he was like not being appreciated like mm-hmm. he made beethoven and then he was like well fuck this <laughs> yeah pretty I, much. I, I i just saw that he has a couple credits within the last decade mm-hmm. one of which was in um 
Unfortunately, we bring this movie up somewhat often, which is the uh, Noah Baumbach film, While We're Young. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I remember... He played a character I just saw. Yeah. Unfortunately, his character's name is Leslie Breitbart. Ew. So, Ooh. I actually think I remember him in that I movie and that. remember liking his character because I believe mm-hmm. he's the guy who's the other, like, Ben Stiller basically not works for, but yeah. uh, is It's like working. Ben Stiller's, like, father-in-law. Almost. Yes, you know and I mean? um, mm-hmm. he's definitely not what's wrong with that movie, mm-hmm. in my opinion because I'm not a fan of that movie. I have a complex relationship with that film. And I'd like to see it again. Yeah, you know? I would. So. But um, but I, I just think he's hysterical. So in this mm-hmm. movie, I think one of the reasons why this whole relationship works between the two of them is that he so perfectly, like, if you have someone like Robert De Niro who gets away with acting with his face. I mean, mm-hmm. he does great performances with dialogue as well, but let's all be serious and like if he didn't have that kind of facial muscles and like what he could do with it, sure. would he be the exact same actor? Would he have the same career path? I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh but Charles Grodin knows that if you have an actor like him, there's going to be silences and you need to be able to fill those silences and I think that's kind of what he does and he punctuates every scene with a bit of not like like if Judd Apatow was directing him, he would like take the leash off and be like, do whatever you want, you know, whatever. And it would get like tiresome. Mm -hmm. But like the editing room, I think is so on point because every time you think a scene's going to go on for too long, it actually just cuts right at the funniest (laughs) apex of the joke. He's making two or three times in a row. And then we're already off to the races. True. To the next scene because I, God, when he talks about the potatoes oh, uh, when they're God. walking through the desert, he's like, "Yeah, you know, you can, uh, you can mash it, you can whatever, and he's like, you can parade it." And, yeah, <laughs> and finally, Rob De Niro is like, "Okay, you know what? Will you just shut the fuck up for one moment?" <laughs> Which is not the first or last time he says that <laughs> to that character. Um, but I also uh, love some of the more tender scenes because he also doesn't really overplay them. It's not mm-hmm. like. Like, he tries to give the audience a reason to see that he's, like, you know, like, a softie or anything. Like, you kind of already know he is or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but, like, the train scene where they're stuck in there, that was famously improvised in that Charles Grodin, in filming other scenes, was always trying to get Robert De Niro to break. And it was that scene that he actually did, and they kept that taken because he held it together. But when he makes a line about, uh, how, have you ever had sex with a chicken? Or would you? <laughs> And then Robert De Niro laughs in that scene. That's him laughing. And that's him improvising. Yeah, there was a few I'd taken a shot at, or I would have taken a shot at. Um, And I feel like that kind of boils down this whole relationship, which is that at the end of the day, these two actually wore each other down so much that they realize what's left, which is like an actual friendship and and good people at their cores. Like, I'm not, I don't dislike this movie, but something like Point Trains and Automobiles. Mm Mm-hmm has such a sentimental ending after an actual hellish experience between the two that it almost becomes Mm self-pitying by the time he extends his olive branch Mm -hmm. to the point where I don't quite buy it. Even if I feel like, oh, this tugs at my heartstrings, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know that I think Steve Martin actually would invite him back to his own house. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's just, whereas here it's just two guys saying, you know what? At the end of the day, we're more like, so why don't we just walk away and good luck? You know what I mean? And, and right. I just think that's a slightly more uh, grounded uh, mm-hmm. encapsulation of that kind of relationship. It's, it's a good way to say that. I mean, 
you know, you guys were talking about road movies and how they're. Uh, I love road movies, and probably this movie is a large part of why I do, uh, because it was kind of a you know a formative, formative. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. a formative film. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this film. I mean, I, well, I love road movies in general, like the change of uh, weather or scenery and all that. But I mean, you know, like I was reading here, it's like there's like I was just looking at all these vehicles that I was noting. It's like they go from plane to train to bus to cop car to wife station wagon to that jalopy truck they stole from like the the res or whatever it was yes. to train then another stolen car and it's like i love to that. swimming <laughs> to swim yeah, yeah absolutely and then it's like i love that and, and, you know and alex you mentioned this too is that it looked like a film that was actually filmed in the locations it was purported to be in you mm-hmm. know and I, I did hear i did read a few days ago that it was it did have several locations much more than probably they would do now they'd be yeah. like oh, okay we can fake this later but now I mean, we just fly to toronto no but it's but there's like i just love that contrast between like those huge open scenes in arizona mm. or like even in like like the interstate after they've got borrowed the car from the wife and they're in Chicago, like the interstate's completely empty. That's like a great That's a shot. weird shot it's in a way where weird. I can't tell if they did that organically or if they accidentally just captured that. I've wondered that too. Because it is a bear, which I feel like is a very good mood setter for that scene, especially because that's the scene where he's going to start to right. finally open up about what happened in Chicago. Right, exactly. So they're literally alone on the road when he's like, okay, finally I'll tell you this thing, you know. But and then you compare that to like L.A. where it's like the the L.A. that we see in the movie is like it's literally just streets that seem to have like only bail bonds. Yeah, it's like bail bond like, alley because and it's like you know like multiple a couple, in a row. Right, exactly. And then occasionally it's punctuated by like you know gold and jewelry for cash, you know, <laughs> something like that. So it's so different. Yeah, I, I you really, get the sense that like Howard Ratner from Uncut Gems. I was just gonna say this is Adam Sandler's <laughs> would basically be in the background going, hey, hey, hey. I disagree. This is how I win. <laughs> this is how I win. <laughs> but there's like even there's that like that weird, really eerie moment when they're outside of Flagstaff, I think, or maybe it's Sedona, and they're like, "Oh, I think you know." For a second, they're like, "I think we've evaded the police," and it's like, and they're just kind of driving along like in this kind of haze, and then they look, and there's like all these cop cars coming one way and they look from the other. It's, there's something really beautiful about the the pacing and the editing and the director taking the time to go okay we're going to give them this moment where they're kind of like okay what the hell are we still doing here you know or, you know because they're so tired and i actually i think that's another thing i really like is that they do get dirtier and mm-hmm. dustier as the yeah. movie progresses and i think that's part of why the sentiment at the end feels earned because you've been with them for like what like almost five days yeah. right and it's like, so at the end of it, it's like you've seen punishing travel. You've seen them really just like, I mean, every manner of travel. And I think that's why that part at the end where he gives him the watch and he lets him go. It's like, this is, it's almost like this is the only scenario where they could be friends. Like in any other scenario, they literally wouldn't get along. Like he says yeah. in the boxcar where he's like, yeah, we probably would still hate each other. That's probably true. But like this one version of reality where they actually had to spend this time together and then they became friends and then they parted. It's, it's kind of ironic in a way. You yeah. Know? So I also love the cap. Yeah, the capper of their friendship, which is that, you know, he says it up front, uh, Robert De Niro, that, you know, he's never taken a payoff in his life. And 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 that's kind of his principle or whatever, which makes him ultimately, when he does the final decision to let him go, like all the more touching because that's the only thing he can do in his book is like, I can't accept anything, but I can just say 
fuck it and walk away. You deserve whatever. And then for Charles Gordon, like, I know it sounds silly because he's just giving him money and, you know, but, like, he just actually made his dreams come true, which is what he had said from the beginning as far as wanting that restaurant and whatnot. Um, and for him to then come back to him and say it's not a payoff, it's a gift. And, you know, yeah, like, exactly. that's an actual touching, like, because he had that the entire time and he kind of hinted that he did because that's why he kept saying, do you want 100000 or right. do you want 200 And we find out he actually has 300 which I actually kind of love that <laughs> number. Like, he still didn't go as high as he, so it was <laughs> yeah. always, like, still in the back of his head. Right. Yeah, I, I do love the, uh, the uh, John Ashton bounty hunter who just is always going for the lower amount and yeah. like can yes. never like uh twenty five twenty five thousand. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, I've yeah, never he lets his one bounty go just for the promise of that, even though he's not even that good of a I mean he's not bad, but right. uh he's nowhere near the professional that uh Robert De Niro is. Yeah. Uh speaking of uh chicken with them, I uh <laughs> did very much enjoy the earlier scene when they were in the dining car and he is eating the chicken wing. Yes. And he's letting him know, you know that's gonna kill you, right? He's yep. like, Yeah, but I still want it, so I'm yep. just gonna keep on eating it. He's like, Well, I think that scene's great just because mm-hmm. um basically there's an answer like that for everyone. Oh, so yeah. living in denial. And yeah. that's what that conversation morphs into. Sure. Because then he turned the back on him, mm-hmm. um, which I thought, you know, is great. Yeah. Um, True. And uh, another thing about that scene that you kind of learn about, but you, you don't, it's really interesting because we find out so much about Robert De Niro's backstory throughout their dialogue and throughout some of the actions in this film. But you almost find out nothing about Charles Grodin. I've often thought about that, mm-hmm. and I think of two things when I think about that idea. Because the moment I start to even think that it's imbalanced in the sense that, I mean, literally it is in the, as far as the relay of information, mm-hmm. but as to whether that's a bad thing or not as a script. And I always then immediately whip back to, no, that's purposeful because mm-hmm. of two reasons, which is that, A... Charles Grodin is literally never not talking. So, like, he is only a conveyor belt of information, his likes, his dislikes, or whatever. So there's really nothing for him to tell. However, I also think that the fact that he doesn't, like, expound off, like, tragic backstories or whatever is actually purposeful and that that is who he is, which is he's unfortunately this extremely kind of dry boring guy who did the one thing he became famous for and that's the only reason why they're stuck in this ridiculous situation and that's why they're going to kill each other by the end of it and um but i i see what you mean in the sense that they don't go through the i don't know the back pages of well i guess more what i was getting at is that just that we go on this pretty figurative and literal journey with Robert De Niro's character. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like, you know, uh, <laughs> it's fun to look at it this way, but Charles Grodin's character is actually more of somebody like Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, where he's just <laughs> yeah. there to I like that to idea. give him advice. Yeah. And true, you think though. you're here because of me, but really, we're here for you. No, no, yeah. I actually think that there's truth to that, yeah. mm-hmm. especially in the sense that, you know, I think script-wise, this works because we're introduced to De Niro's character. We are not quite introduced to Charles Grodin's character. Like, he never really... 
like, you know, stops to be like, okay, are you this person? I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah, we, we sort of learn the legend first. Yeah. And then we find the man. You know? yep, and, and he's just there. And I actually love the first time he's on the screen when he breaks into his apartment, I guess, um, with the dog in the bathroom. Because I kind of love that for a guy who talks a lot or whatever, he actually doesn't talk almost at all in that scene because I think in his private life or whatever uh not that he's not talkative or anything like that but he's was slightly more uh reserved and whatever and so from the moment he opens the door to see the you know the fbi well what he thinks might be an fbi agent or whatever uh i just kind of like how there's no semblance because he starts to like smile like oh bro you know oh bother like (laughs) this is a real whatever and it's only from the moment that he feels like he's now stuck in this that he's like, well, we've got to make the best of it. Uh, do you like potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, also, too, maybe I mentioned this already, so sorry if yeah. I, I already said this, but, yeah. yeah, he is almost completely silent at the scene at uh, the ex-wife's house. Mm. So he is just standing in the background kind of, like, watching this play out and yep. not... Being like, by the way, I'm the Duke. Yeah, no, and <laughs> that's actually, I would say, kind of the inverse of something like Planes, Trains, and Automobile, where mm. that movie, in my opinion, I don't love, but that one scene in the motel is like the apex of that movie, and it's oh, so yeah. good, yeah, where John Candy kind of lets on a little bit of how self-aware he is, mm-hmm. even if you don't buy that, not buy it, but see that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that was Charles Grodin's The Duke's moment of letting on that he's not the exact kind of neurotic and always talking, like he knows his, not his place, but when he's not needed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, because I actually do think half the time he really was talking to De Niro to try to lighten him up and not to actually just be a bother. Like, he, I think mm-hmm. he kind of thought, like, I think you need this just as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Whereas in that house, he pretty much, if anything, he tries to get him to go, even though it was him who was saying, like, oh, I think you should go visit your ex-wife and kid. Right. And then the moment it goes south a little bit, he's, like, almost trying to pull him back and be like, well, you can go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, that's a good point. I mean, he does sort of, um, uh, he has good emotional intelligence, I would say, in that regard. You know, because there's that one moment where he says something and, and you know, he's like, I don't think he meant it like that. You know, it's, <laughs> that's the one time he tries to intervene, and then he's like, all right, forget yep. it. You know? Yeah. Um, oh, God. I love his two – I mean, he does it a lot in the movie, but there are two prime examples of Charles uh, Charles Grodin's uh, shit-eating grin, mm. one of them being when uh, Robert De Niro is trying to talk to the lady <laughs> at the uh, station. I don't know right. if it was the bus station hmm, or whatever. Bus, yeah. yeah, and he's trying to order a ticket even though his credit card has been declined. And that scene goes on for like two minutes, not in a way where it goes on too long, but it just gets funnier and funnier because Robert De Niro is doing nothing other than just like trying to get that card processed and whatever. And right there, Charles Grodin is just right next to him, just shaking his head like, can you believe this guy? Like, I know, what it's a- like, I'm with stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and- that you mentioned it while we were watching the film, but that is just great timing by the uh, whoever the actress was who was uh, playing there. And he's like, can you just... Run it through again. I mean, FBI agent. No, 
Yeah, just, <laughs> that just, was yeah. funny. It's like she's like perfect. No. You know what? Yeah. I've done it three times. That's it. Yeah, I mean, well, is... then she points out she's like, oh, well, you know what? Alonzo Mosley's not the name on the credit card you do, <laughs> which I kind of like because a lot of times uh, in these movies mm-hmm. they don't actually account for the third parties or accessory yes. people to be smart. And I kind of yes. like how most of the people actually kind of didn't buy into this shit. They just don't care, you know, whatever, because they they weren't like waving a gun around or whatever. Mm. Uh, but I was going to say the other shit-eating grin that yeah. I always crack up at is the one where uh, it's revealed that not only is he not afraid of flying, but he can fly a plane. Because right. when it cuts to him in the uh, plane, the little one, two-person plane or whatever, I love that he never actually like waves at him because I felt like that would have been like the overacting. <laughs> but the way he just kind of turns to look at him like... <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> it's like, just so great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, you fair flying, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You, I just really fascinated. You know, yeah. what you mentioned about uh, characters. One thing that I, really struck me when I watched this a few days ago was that none of the characters, like, the characters are largely believable. Like, I, I, I don't think, they're not superhuman, but they're not total idiots for the most part. Like, Marvin is like, He's not the brightest dude, but he's competent. I mean, you could see how he could be an average to above average bounty hunter. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, he has that thing where he's like, he looks up the credit card and he's like, oh, you should cancel that. I'm like, okay, oh, yeah. you know, because I mean, that's something that an idiot in a movie wouldn't do. Like, the only yeah. guy who's really pretty dumb is, uh, what's his name? Tony. Jo- Joey, I guess, or whatever. Or is it Tony? Oh, Jerry? Jerry? No, no, no. Joey, the uh, the guy who's play act, play fighting. Oh, yeah. Tony, I think. <laughs> Tony, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, he's the, but I mean, everybody else, they actually can kind of see the angles. They're yeah. not like complete no, no, no. mo's. And I, I think mm-hmm. that makes it for a mo- much more interesting film. Yeah. You know? One of actually kind of on that same thought train is that um, not only can everybody see the angles, but uh, almost everybody has moments where they one up another character, and it's almost in reaction to being one upped by a different character. That's and really it becomes good point. this hmm. passing the buck of just annoyance because uh, <laughs> every time, like Robert De Niro pisses off Alonzo Mosley by using his whatever, then Alonzo Mosley will go and shit over on the door floor <laughs> by taking his cigarettes, right. and then it just becomes this whole cycle of hilariously petty abuse that's being strewn <laughs> upon everybody. That's, that's one of the uh, best circlebacks. <laughs> in this entire film is in McCarran Airport uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the film when he's like, don't let this guy get your cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yeah, I know. It's like after all that, when they're finally not lost, but it's over, he's like, you know what? We're bounty hunters and I respect you more than I respect him. So therefore, uh, yeah. Right. Well, 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 as a colleague, I'm going to give you that. <laughs> so, yeah. This is uh, not really a critique, but just something looking at it about better to show, not tell, but yeah. Uh, obviously he makes mention that he took his cigarettes. It would have had been a much better payoff, I think, if he just would have just noticed they weren't gone and not said something and then made the comment later. It would have been even... Yeah. Even tighter. Although, on a first viewing in 1988, they're probably like, well... We need to underline this a little. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, then the other thing I was going to say is I love the... As I was saying, like, passing the book, but there's also... A slight running gag of also the exchanging of unwanted thefts, so to speak. Sure. Because you have moments in which Robert De Niro takes his badge. You have moments in which people swipe sunglasses. Oh, right. And I like how all these things play into either the plot, like whether it be Robert De Niro being able to do some of the things he's able to do, or into like running uh, gags that get 
highlighted, uh, you know, early, uh, later on. So, you know, like the sunglasses thing being the capper to when Robert De Niro is finally caught. He's mm-hmm. literally, visually, he's caught by the sunglasses. You know what I mean? Like, yes. obviously, he's being technically detained by policemen. But what enters the frame is that. And for that to literally, almost like karma, come back into his life uh, in that kind of visual way. I, I just think there's an actual visual palette here that is much more playful than the average uh, just, you know, mainstream comedy. And there are moments when I kind of see it, too, in which there are shots that are not like, like one perfect shot type picturesque whatever but these are extremely work-like shots that are then actually extenuated by how people move into the frame Mm -hmm. and i think part of it is danny elfman's score which Mm -hmm. is i think fantastic and i kind of said while we were watching this that tim burton was the worst thing that ever happened to him (laughs) not because he then made awful scores Mm -hmm. but then he only made that score (laughs) whereas something like this proves that he was actually pretty talented in multiple areas Mm -hmm. um but there's a like i remember one moment i don't remember if it's Jerry the Donut Guy or one of the two goons, but one mm-hmm. of them when they're on the street of uh, Bail Bond Alley, mm-hmm. uh, we just see a normal static shot of the you know the street, and then the music starts playing, and it's kind of a boring shot. But then all of a sudden, from the right, uh, one of the goons walks onto frame almost perfectly. Yes, and I'm not going to say it's like Wes Anderson level of composure, mm. but it definitely is like actually th- thought of and thought through as to how to compose these kinds of like dynamic characters who Mm. are just kind of bumbling in and out of the picture which is kind of the visual and thematic motif of how they each keep uh, intersecting with uh, you know certain converging points so Mm. I would agree I'd love to talk about the score actually Um, it's one of my favorite parts and you know uh, actually I think the theme um, well the score in general just shows you how like I think everybody involved in this film Everyone, like, really gave a shit. Like, there wasn't, like, anybody who phoned it in. I feel like everybody from, you know, the design, you know, costume design to the acting to the writing, you know, everybody, like, like okay, so I got a list here. And it's, like, all the buddy movies that came out. I well, thought you were going to say you printed out the credits. No, no, I didn't do that. But, like, Hollywood, <laughs> like, had buddy movies coming out of its ass at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had, like, the Beverly Hills Cop, you know, especially the second one, like... You had like all these movies with the name Heat in them. Like oh, yeah. Red Heat, uh, Dead Heat, which is terrible. <laughs> Actually, City Heat. Redwood. T- Sorry. Oh, Red. <laughs> oh, Redwood. No. You know, like, huh. I mean, I'm like Tango and Cash. Yeah. Running Scared. Turner and Hooch. Turner. Oh, actually, I did mention K9. <laughs> you know, you jumped the gun. Uh, damn yeah. you. But I mean, yeah, like, I mean, even. Lethal like, Weapon. Le- the Lethal Weapon movies. You got like Collision Course, which features uh, Jay Leno and Pat Morita. Ooh. I mean, I think we've all seen Ooh. and enjoyed that. I've never seen it, actually. Uh, only once because I was too afraid to watch porn in the hotel and that was the only other thing right it was either that or the sharks <laughs> um, 48 hours uh, heart condition yeah. heart condition is actually not a bad film but I'm going to leave it at that yeah. That's, uh, I'm going to leave that alone anyway but like the <laughs> thing about this theme is it's like Danny Elfman went like well, the whole score, he went like way above and beyond. And it's like the theme um, was actually he spun it off into a song called Try to Believe. Um, and it's um, like by far I'm, – I'm a big fan of Oingo Boingo, which was the band Danny Elfman was in. And like this came out in like 88. And this was like by far and away his like least satirical, most like hopeful lyric. Yeah. It's like very up. You know, I mean, the you know. And uh, oddly enough, though, actually, I noticed today on the soundtrack that it was like – 
credited to mostly in the B-Men, which is kind of weird. So, huh. Alfred Alonzo will... Mosley? Exactly. <laughs> I'm Mosley! No, um, <laughs> but Elfman will do that shit. Like, he had something on To Die For where, like, he and Gus Van Zandt were singing and they named them. I don't know. Uh. Anyway, so it's the last track off The Dark at the End of the Tunnel, which was like the song of Boingo album, which I really like, and, which you may have guessed is a really dark album because of the title. And he did basically only one more album with that band, and, like, that's a totally different style. It's like, this is basically the last Oingo Boingo. But it's like, when I look at this, and I look at this song, this theme, and I look at how different it is than stuff he did that same year. Like, he did Beetlejuice, right, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, or he, the next year he did Batman and the Simpsons theme. And you look at how, like, completely I forgot about that. Right? It's, yeah. like, so different in style. It's like... He's never done anything like it since, or really before. And it's like almost like this Sam and Dave Chicago buddy guy thing with a lot of horns, you know? And there's like the electric like slide guitar, which is like really swampy as fuck. And it's <laughs> like, you know, it's almost like um like a Ry Cooter score, yeah. except like as far as you could get to Ry Cooter without it being yeah. Ry Cooter performing it, you know? But it's like I think the score is a lot like the movie in the sense that it's kind of a microcosm for the fact that everybody went Brought their A game. You know it, what I mean? It's like, I mean, you could have made a really buddy comedy bullshit movie, which were just being manufactured. And instead, like, I mean, you know, everybody brought their A game and it, I think, became like a work of art because of that. Because it could have just as easily been like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's a paycheck. Well, you know? and you think of something like from the same era of like Beverly Hills Cop made by the same director. Indeed. Uh, Mr. But there, Breast. There you have, uh, what do you call it? Do, 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 do. Oh, right. Yeah. And like, while that's a catchy song, it also feels like a first draft that accidentally became famous because it was so simple. and whatnot. Right. Whereas uh, I feel like this is has no qualms about being in the genre that it's in mm-hmm. because you don't normally do scores like this for the most part because right. uh, unless you're like doing an actual like, I don't know, exploitation type, you know, whatever, this <laughs> totally. feels almost out of place if you don't have the confidence to back up this kind of freewheeling uh, vagabond style and whatnot. So. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, you're good. I... Uh... I was not sure how to feel about the score for oh, most of the film, um, sure. and I, I feel like I ultimately enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, I think that one thing that's really important about a good score, and so this may pass that test then, mm. is that it really changes the tone of a lot of the actions that happen throughout the film. Yeah. But it's not like Benny Hill music is playing <laughs> in the background. No. Like It is lighthearted for the most part, and it is kind of silly. Uh, at other times, but yeah. too, um, it really hits the feel of of these two guys just being out there. Like, even though they're always in danger, like as an audience member, I feel like they're never in any danger to be, <laughs> you know, no, bumped off like or a, something like that. A cozy movie, absolutely. Even though yeah. I completely buy Dennis Farina and oh yeah, the goon yeah. as like actual mafia hitmen. Uh, I do think that this movie is deliberately, and the score is a big part of that, uh, trying to just be a good warm blanket of like a, I don't know, of a buddy movie. Yeah, right? like the the helicopter explosion happened, but just that one guy died. Yeah, we don't really know we who those know guys him. are. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I found out just really fast. I found out the other day that um, in the original script, they were going to kill Marvin Dorfler. And like the uh, guys were going to go, oh, the Blue Angel Motel on the on the photo, and they were going to kill him. And they decided he was too likable 
And so they modified it so they only just beat the crap out of them and took the... You know what I mean? Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Like, there was some changes made to the tone as it progressed. Well, I guess the the tone had evolved and they didn't want to jolt it out of that, you know, mm. which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, I could definitely see that being a weird sour if, if you're mm-hmm. not... Like, not because it'd be like, oh, God, no, not Marvin. Right. But if he's the only person that dies, it almost feels weirdly like, okay, that's a little punishing. <laughs> right, For right. being a kind of light movie. But Right, right. Yeah. Uh, we, oh, what were you going to say? Oh, oh, no, I just... um, I have just a few random things. I'm sorry, go on. Well... Mm-hmm. Do your random thing. Okay. I mean, I was going to say we can move into final rating. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, let's see now. First of all, I really like the, uh, love the little details. So again, it's like you could tell everybody gave a shit. So it's like, I love how like the logo in the the beginning yeah. is the same one that's used in the poster and the cover. But it's like, it's like yeah. the only movie I know where they were really consistent. I bought the poster for this movie. Yes. That very white background with the white and red text. Yes. Because it's one of the few times where the 80s kitsch is actually like mm-hmm. apropos of the movie itself. But also extremely, I would say, unabashed in its uh, in presenting what it is because this actually is just a fun, good movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of the other stuff is like I don't know, just there's a lot of like just little gags that I didn't notice right away, but you know, seeing it more recently, like like I, don't, I was laughing about that part where um, Agent Mosley like. Like he like sort of just opens the door, like when he goes into the police precinct, and it's just like, Burr. it's like he's not even using his hand. He just he just like pushes it and just goes, Burr. and it just I don't know, it's funny to me. Yeah. Sorry, this but, is really random, but I can't oh, think ahead. of you saying Agent Mosley and not think of Mosley from Downton Abbey. So yeah. I don't know. Oh. Actually, I know really I. But. When the first time I watched this was when Downton Abbey was still in its early run, and um, when they introduced Mosley, I was like, I did actually start to think that for a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just like, oh, sorry. <laughs> just, Mosley, uh, he's a. Uh, I haven't actually seen Downton Abbey. I mean, I'm aware of its existence. He oh, okay. Course, plays but, uh, this I've heard it's good. He's one of the servers ah. for the most part. He, oh, he's a. Uh, I mean, he's he's the butler at a lower household, mm-hmm. and then he becomes a footman i think at the main Pretty house much. and he's kind of a comedic relief in mm, that he's kind yes. of a uh, small character and i don't mean that as like but just like he seems like he's only holding on to his job for dear life not because it's such a cartoonish show sure but he, everybody else has a little more poise out of every character on the show i would say he is the most person that exemplifies uh, someone meaning well, yeah. where most of the characters on that show have an angle, whether mm. they're from the service or their yeah. house, and Even he's if they're just good people. Yeah, but yeah, mm-hmm. and he's just wanting to just be a good person. He's just a dope. Yeah, it sounds that's somewhat true too. But uh, anyways, getting back to this. Oh mostly. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, there's that part. You know, like you're talking about how like Groden was always trying to crack up De Niro, and there's that part like I think I even wrote down. It was like. 44 minutes into the film where he's like, he's just trying to get him to put up the cigarette. And it's just the, the shot just keeps mm. going and they're on the bus and like, you can see De Niro totally loosen it. And he's like, ah, oh, what a pain in the ass. This guy is just like, wow, that was like his recovery. That was the yeah. close, you know, otherwise he would have totally broken character. You know, I love that. I'm still kind of amazed by rewatching it. How many times a scene devolves into them saying the same thing back and forth to each other. Totally. And it actually doesn't get old because yeah. they don't do it that many times. They do it more than two or three times, and by the time they're on the bus, and he's, and he's just like, put out the cigarette, Jack. Right. Go put out the cigarette. 
put out the signature. And I think it's because right. Charles Grodin never changes his delivery, and yeah. Robert De Niro always changes his delivery. I totally agree. Like, Charles Grodin's so insistent. He's put like, out you the know. But it's like, like, like uh, I, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, but um, uh, but it's like there's that part where they're at the uh, diner, and, uh, you know, they've only got a little change left, and, and the uh, waitress is like, well, we have chorizo and eggs. And he's like, oh, that's so... And he's like, oh, that's so... And, you know, De Niro's like, no, no, we're going to have... And he's like, he just watches her walking away like... I'm so hungry. And I, he's like, yeah, you know, in 10 minutes, I'll, I'll buy you a steak. He's like, chorizo and eggs. Yeah, I'll buy yeah. you anything you want. He's like, chorizo, chorizo and eggs. He's like, yeah, he's seriously, kid, whatever you want, he's, chorizo he's a, and eggs. He's a little kid. Yeah, yeah he's like, he's like yeah. I want chorizo and eggs, you bastard. You bought cigarettes with our money. And it, and again, I also want to mention this because like, I, I knew this movie for many, many years. And then uh, I met my gal, Heidi, who... Uh, a few years ago, she's like, oh, I could make you treats and eggs. And I'm like, oh, is that a real thing? Oh, my God. And she makes the best. It's so good. And she makes treats and eggs and nachos, which oh, I believe mm. is even better. It's wow. like, it's just heavenly. Call so, Charles Grodin. I know. It's so, but every time, I always think treats and eggs. I treats feel eggs. like that there's no situation where Charles Grodin could ever live without wearing a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. In real life, he's. I assume the whole time. it could be ninety degrees in Arizona, and he would just show up in shorts and a sweater, <laughs> I, at least so. a sweater vest. <laughs> in, in the same scene, though, I will say I also really quickly mm-hmm. love the delivery of his completely defeated uh, ordering of the tea when yes. he's like, uh, "How much for the coffee? Fifty-three cents. How much for the tea? Fifty-three cents." I'll have the tea. <laughs> I know. Like, why does he deliberate so much over that? It's like you'd think as an accountant, he would be able to do the math and decide really fast. But now I know I'm not your accountant, but I would strongly. <laughs> I like, well, I'm I would not, have advised. But you're not my. I know. But if I was. Yes. Yes. Oh, and the, anyway. uh, the other thing uh, I just I got to mention this because <laughs> Heidi called me today and she was like, so, you know, I did a little research on the thousand dollar bill. Yeah. This shows you what kind yeah. of, you know, what kind of geeks we are. And apparently, I had no idea about this, so this is going to shake your foundations when it comes to action movies. I'm ready. Okay, so <clears throat> she told me that the $1,000 bill was actually discontinued in 1946. I thought you were going to say after this movie because of this movie. No, 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 that's the worst part, is that it, and so they discontinued it, and then in 69, they tried to recall it, and like people were like, you can... Take my thousand dollar bill from my dead whole hands. So at the, the where are these people from? <clears throat> they may be from the deep south. I'm just saying. Where all the thousand dollar bills are just being thrown. Oh yeah, around. they're like, woo! I got the thousand dollar bills. They're, they're all in these magic belts that have never been seen before. Mm-hmm. That was kind of weird that that did just pop up. He's like, here it is, yeah. but, but like, oh. with thousand dollar bills, right? Yeah. And it's like, so okay, so. <laughs> So Heidi, three hundred, three hundred. I know in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand. Yeah. So Heidi tells me today she's like, there's approximately one hundred and sixty-five thousand three hundred and seventy-two, which is a very, a very, you yeah, know, specific for, number for approximate. Yeah. There's about that many thousand-dollar bills that are left in circulation, and like, if you have, do one they of those, have value? Yes, that's the thing. Okay. Is if you like, if you have them, they're worth way more than a thousand bucks. So like, you could, if you took them to the treasury, you'd be a fool because it's like they're not gonna. You would be. You're not way gonna more. get the monetary. Right. We'll give or you a thousand dollars. Yes, way more than a thousand bucks. Yeah. So Although, how does anything actually have more monetary value than it? Because you can't. 
like sell it or use it for any other purpose. I guess it has to do with collectors, maybe people yeah. who are like, "Oh, I want to, I want to like keep." But why know, would I they like pay more than a thousand and one dollars? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, well, I, I have uh, a few two dollar bills still in my desk drawer. Those those do still, I guess, are in circulation. Are in circulation. They don't print many right, of them, right, but right. yeah. It is funny, uh, and this is not... not brag. <laughs> no, I love This is not perfect science, but funny, we were talking about Las Vegas a little bit when uh, it pops up in this film. Right. Uh, but uh, Las Vegas chips that are discontinued, oh, they right. have higher values than what they are, were purchased for. That I kind of so. see, though, because yeah. they're already an abstract version of value mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the moment they're being used, because mm-hmm. they're not money, they're... The They're a marker. Yeah. So that I get. I just feel like actual paper currency. I'm just like, but anyway. It, but I, but I, I see what I, you're saying. I, I feel yeah. like yeah. there are two things, though, about the $1,000 bill, which is such a minor detail, but I think it's kind of fun at the yeah. end of the film. Mm. One, it almost feels like, uh, and it's not exact, but it almost feels like the briefcase full of the <laughs> golden whatever from Pulp Fiction, where it's yeah. just... It's just so outlandish that it's mm-hmm. just it's just like look magic. But it's also <laughs> it the is. white collar version of it, <laughs> yes. which is like only that character would not have a briefcase or whatever. He would just have this ridiculous fanny pack belt. <laughs> oh, but totally. on, on the realistic side, though, <laughs> if you're the filmmakers, how do we have him having this the whole time yeah. and not have like a satchel or something? Well, so. and it does actually, right. honestly, not that anyone's like dying to know, but. <laughs> Honestly, that does answer a question, which is if he is so rich, why doesn't he have any money with him? So I do like the idea right. that he had that the whole time, and he never once offered to pay for anything. Well, he. I does... mean, I know he can, but also he could have well, somehow the way when like, he wants oh, to have trees and eggs. Exactly, he could have yeah. been like, "Oh, yeah. I found this in my sock," much like Joey oh. Pants over there, where he keeps his uh, <laughs> twelve hundred. Yeah, twelve hundred. By... Yeah. Oh, twelve. You didn't know it was twelve hundred. Thought it was. Taken. Thought it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why you had the money ready for me. No, anyway. Uh, sorry, this little casino. Um, yeah. Anyway, I already said it. Don't have to apologize to me. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, just to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nick. I apologize. Uh, but yeah, I, I was thinking that too. And well, you know, and Heidi was telling me that it's like at this point. It's like so rare that it's, you know, it, it, but basically the whole idea was that they were trying to like in the 60s, they were trying to recall it because apparently it had to do with drug dealers. It was too uh, easy for for people moving large shipments of drugs to have like thousand dollars. And there's like, yeah. uh, you know, and she said there was like ten thousand dollar bills, hundred thousand, which obviously those aren't don't exist anymore. But the thousand was around for quite a while. But apparently uh, crime, uh, it, you know, so but, thanks, yeah. crime. <laughs> So, final ratings? Yeah. Let's do it. Um, who wants to go first? I can go first, oh, all right. since I'll probably have the least to say. Uh, I thought this was very good. I enjoyed it quite uh, a lot, and I would definitely want to have another viewing to firm up my actual score rating, I would yeah. think. But on a first pass, I thought this was quite good, and I would give it three and a half out of five. Nice. Uh, it was a nice, fun film that I enjoyed really the entirety of... Um, something I did want to mention, um, we talk about Charles Grodin and his the way he dryly portrays these this character. Um, but his over the top antics on the plane when it's about to take off is <laughs> oh, just yeah. is just great. Like he doesn't know how to actually do that, so yeah. this is what he thinks he should be doing, and it's just like, Rawr! 
These know. things are too big. They yeah. go yeah. down. I love that. Once yeah. you realize that that's completely fabricated, mm-hmm. just makes that scene even better. I think on rewatch, when you realize that it's not just a jokey comedic performance, it's a bad comedic performance for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally. Uh, so I I thought this was really solid, and um, it was just it was just fun. Fun. Yeah. There's not really much I could say that I really disliked about it either. Just that I'd want to see it through a second time to see how things land. Uh, that's always so. my biggest contention with people who like, if they hear like, Oh, that's one of your favorite movies. I'm like, I don't, you don't even have to like it, but like mm-hmm. point at what's inherently wrong about it. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it just is what it is. But mm-hmm. so anyway, no, so. it was very, very fun. And uh, definitely something I would want to revisit yeah. down the road. <laughs> want to go next? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, this is five out of five for me. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I hate to say that, but like, you know, when I'm on here, it's like I hate I pick, to hear it. I know, I know. <laughs> God damn you! Uh, but I mean, it's like whenever I pick the movie, it's like I'm picking a five out of five. So Army of Shadows or this, it's going to be a five out of five. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I just love everything about it. I love the details. I love uh, all the little casting notes, like the guy who plays Jerry, uh, who I found out just died a couple weeks ago, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah I know. I, so, not that I laughed. I just... No, but it, it was, was like, weirdly sudden. It was it was very odd, yeah. yeah. And I, like, I remembered him being in like Serpico, which is another movie Well, we corruption. dedicate this episode to, to his memory. To Jack Kehoe, if that's how I'm pronouncing correctly. Here we go. But, uh, or like uh, Tracy Walter, who's like the dude at the diner, you know? And he's like been in a million... Yeah, dead homies. <laughs> no, uh, but like that dude at the diner, you know, who like... He was yeah. he was Bob in Batman. Like he's been in a million movies. That guy, he's like in Wait, Bob in Batman. Yeah, Bob. Who's the Bob? Guy. Yeah, he's a uh, Joker's right hand number guy. one. Oh, Bob. The guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, right. He's he only got that role because Jack Nicholson likes him. <laughs> well, he's apparently really prolific. He's been in a bazillion movies. Like I just saw Hardcore a couple months ago, and I was like, oh, I rewatched oh, the Paul it. Schrader film. Yeah, and I'm like, holy crap, he's at the. Thing. It's funny because I kind of thought that was him, but I also was like, nah, and I didn't say anything. Well, it's but such a small thing. You yeah, know? that's that's great. So, that guy, that guy don't, make fun, don't make fun of his penis. I, he had such a weird smile in this, the way he was playing that. I was like, this is a very interesting, yeah, very interesting guy. Was, but uh, he, he comes and goes. So well, yep. It's right. so great because the only reason why he's getting away with what he's getting away with is because Eddie Muscone is literally can't be bothered to actually look at him or pay attention to him. Mm, you know what right. I mean? Like, he's not a good actor. Like, in universe right whatsoever right. he's not faking it but because <laughs> eddie is way more preoccupied with trying to keep his little chess pieces uh, mm-hmm. moving uh he never once thinks to look over in that direction right okay. true and i mean also i was going to say phil baker hall of sydney and um uh, i i feel like I, we should just quickly oh, say yeah. uh take it away nick yeah mm. well i i have always heard or i should say i always have the belief that uh you know he showed up in this movie as the character of sydney who's just this almost unnamed not by actual name but just relationship and profession yeah. uh character who comes in to help in the crime element with Dana Farina's character and that's about it and so for Paul Thomas Anderson my favorite American filmmaker mm-hmm. to have his debut be uh well originally it was titled Sydney yes, and then yeah. Miramax or whatever it was wanted a different title for the release, so it was called Hard Eight. Uh, but for that to be about John C. Riley meeting up with this kind of, not shady at all, but just kind of like over-the-hill mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> fixer-type criminal named Sidney, uh, I feel like that was actually him doing head casting of like, 
these movies take place in the same universe. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Um, not in a way that in any way where he tries to make that connection other than just naming him that and just having the image of what he wanted that character to be. But him blatantly just being like, I'm a film student. I, you know, <laughs> these are the films I watched, I loved and grew up on. Right. So if I'm going to start anywhere, it's going to be starting with what I love. Is that right, all right. been confirmed i i can't i don't think he's ever said it on the record but he has said that he wrote that movie for philip baker hall Mm -hmm. and i can't believe if you wrote it for him because you like him that much and you named him that character in a movie you know that he would have been seen about the time he was going to high school wasn't he in las vegas i mean Uh, he's in uh yeah yeah he's in vegas i mean i was gonna say like we're in the same outfit pretty much yeah i mean it's one of those things where i feel like he I mean, he said he in rec on record that he wrote that movie for him because he never gets leading roles. Right. So he wanted his first movie, if he could, to get him a leading role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it was also a kind of a winking homage to like the greats before him and what he grew up on. So. Which it kind of makes me feel good to know that uh, P.T. Anderson might hold Midnight Runner in as high regard as I do. Because, yeah. like I said before, I met you. I, I didn't. I mean, I knew a couple people who liked it. You know, my brother and I really loved it. But other than that, it was kind of like, oh, yeah. it's it's one of those buddy movies from the late 80s. Yes. You know? And PTA himself is actually not a stranger for shared universes, not in a Quentin Ooh. Tarantino way where mm. he tries to make those connections. Sure. But in his first three movies, the one that took place in the 90s, I think, um, there's one character that's always mentioned, like off screen that never shows up. Oh really? Uh that's the name is mentioned in all three movies as if somehow that character you never meet is a thing. So I feel like that is Interesting. A, a nod to him doing the same thing with Sydney himself. So anyway. Well that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Hmm. So so five out of five for me. Um, I love it. I think it's it's in, in many ways it's a perfect movie and a masterpiece. I mean, again, uh, other people may not be their cup of tea, but I feel like for what it but is, but for fifty three cents, you can't beat that. Price. Exactly. I'll take tea. No, anyway. Uh, but I mean, yeah. But I feel like at this, like for that type of movie, and for the fact that everybody, like I said, just everybody seems to be on their A game all the way through it. Like everybody was like, you know, like. I remember reading that Yafet Koto was like sick during the making of it, and he's like, "Nah," I'm just like, "I'm surprised it turned out so well." But I mean, there's just the fact that everybody was like trying their hardest, and that they had such a great cast, and and they didn't go just for obvious stars. You know, like originally they were going to cast uh, Robin Williams as the grown role, and then they actually talked about Albert Brooks, which would have been interesting. That could have worked. Yeah. Would have been a different movie. But, it would have. Yeah. But then they were talking about share. It was like, oh, there'll be sexual tension. I know. Mm-hmm. I just read this the other First day. First of all, there is sexual tension between Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro. Yeah, because of the chickens. I mean, yeah. everybody knows. You know. So, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, for me, it's it's a five out of five. It's definitely my top ten. Um, I, I just think it's a wonderful film. And uh, yeah, that's it. I got to echo that and say this is a five out of five for me. Um, this is kind of, there are movies that I, I know I hold up in the esteem of which that I genuinely think that they can do no wrong. And it's not so much that like if someone critiques it, I'll be like, this is why you're wrong. It's more just that the presentation here that lies within this movie, it's just so impeccable to me um, that somebody was able to create something this tightly wound uh, mm. within a genre that's not like my all-time favorite genre when it comes to that kind of rollicking crime or sure. uh, even buddy cop movies or whatever. Right. But the synthesis of all of these personalities and all of these uh, kind of meshed up genres, I just think made beautiful alchemy one time in the 80s uh, in a way that we'll never get again, and I absolutely love it. So five out of 
five. Amen. For me, uh, please, Dan, we do not invoke religious debate. Ramen. Sorry. <laughs> that's the flying spaghetti monster. Oh, Ramen. That's cute. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, if anyone out there has thoughts on Midnight Run, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or just check in with us on Twitter or Facebook at filmtankshow as well. Or if you don't have thoughts, watch the movie. Boom. That is also a very good option. Uh, and also you can find all our episodes on filmtankshow.com or also on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or mm-hmm. really anywhere. Not anywhere, but you know. Yeah. But those are the main ones, right? Pretty yeah, much, yeah. Pretty much. Uh, so coming up on our next episode, uh, we're going to do our first new release in a while, uh, which isn't really a new release, but it is a film that, uh, by the time we record that episode, could be an Oscar winner. Uh, that's right. Could be that's best coming picture up this winner. Week? It is. Oh boy. Yep. Uh, so myself, Nick and our friend Sam are going to do an episode on the Sam Mendes film, 1917. Nice. So that'll be fun coming up. Uh, I know that, uh, just to give a little sneak preview, I am a big fan, and Nick is not necessarily. <laughs> so, eh, and I, I don't think he hates it or anything, but... <laughs> no, I mean, I don't. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a good reaction. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I'm lukewarm. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, so, that'll be fun, just yeah. coming up, even though because there's uh, at least something to talk about with it, so that should be a good time. That'll be coming up on our next episode. Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me again. Oh, thank you, always, Dan. Always a pleasure to have you here. So it's a lot of fun. Thanks for stopping by. Ron Burgundy. So, uh, from Dan, Nick Cheney, and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to us at Film Tank. Catch up with you next time.